Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Titus, the book of Titus. Brant's finished up last time um, before Thanksgiving, um, week before Thanksgiving on the series there from Acts chapter 2 and all the various aspects of that uh, passage, and uh, which was good. And so we've got about five more Wednesdays here before the end of the year, so we're going to cover them by first three, first three starting tonight with a, just a quick study of the book of Titus and some themes that are there, I think, that are important to us. Um, and so we'll go just one chapter each week here for the next three weeks, and then we'll finish up with a couple chapters, uh, or a couple of messages on the book of Jude. But the title of the message tonight is Set in Order, Set in Order, and we'll explain why that's the case. You'll see that as we go about it. Um, and I'm sure this, is, this shouldn't be anything surprise to you what the book of Titus is a part of, but just for those who aren't familiar with it or haven't read it recently, the book of Titus is one of Paul's three epistles including 1st 2nd Timothy, uh, commonly called the pastoral epistles, due to their focus on church organization, a concern for strong doctrine, and an emphasis on proper Christian conduct, which you can see where that would apply to us. So as R.C. Sproul points out in his introductory notes on this book, he says, Titus also affirms, and this is important, because you look at some of these books in the New Testament, and we probably have read them multiple times, but we don't always look for the little gems that are there, little kind of you know, things that grab us and say, wow, that's, that's significant. He said, Titus also affirms the deity of Christ in a very striking manner. In the, the title Savior is applied freely and in the same context to both God, in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 4, and to Christ, in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 3, verse 6, and in chapter 2, verse 13, it speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in that, just these you know, few verses here and there, we see very clearly that Paul is declaring the deity of Christ. He compares them to God. He, they use the same title as Savior for God the Father and for him. So that's an important picture here that uh, Paul is making for us. He's reaffirming uh, in this letter to Titus, which, of course, Titus is supposed to teach to all those, the um, churches there in Crete, that Jesus is God. He is deity. And that's important for us, of course, to declare to the world. So Titus, like Timothy, was, as we probably know, Paul's personal representative, sort of a vice apostle, I guess you could call him, that was doing the Lord's work under Paul's direction. And Titus is not mentioned, interestingly, he's not mentioned in the book of Acts at all, but he is mentioned 13 times, refers to him 13 times, in the Pauline epistles throughout the New Testament. So it'll appear that he was probably one of Paul's most trusted friends and companions. He was a Greek, we're told, in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. Was probably had a stronger personality than Timothy, because we're told Timothy was rather shy, and you know Paul tried to encourage him to be strong. So uh, Titus seems to be a little different than Timothy. In Titus chapter 1, verse 4, which we'll see, Paul calls him his true son. In, this faith, probably in the faith, probably indicating that Paul had led him to Christ. Uh, Paul refers to him as his brother in 2 Corinthians 2.13 and his partner and fellow helper in 2 Corinthians 8.23. We read where he went up with the apostles to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, but unlike Timothy, he refused to be circumcised. He didn't feel that was necessary. He no doubt traveled to Crete with Paul uh, to spread the gospel. When Paul moved on, he was left behind with the charge to organize the churches that Paul had planted there on the island. 
Scholars believe that the epistle was probably written around AD 62 to AD 64, while Paul was still on his, what some think was his fourth missionary journey. So let's begin now with the study of this short but important epistle of Paul uh, to Titus. Paul's instructions here, and this is, this is where it kind of ties into us. Paul's instructions to Titus to teach sound doctrine, uh, ordered church government, and to refute errors are applicable to us today. That's what we should be doing, right? We should be teaching sound doctrine. We should be organized in our government. And we should be refuting errors. We should be speaking out against errors. So even though it's written, you know, a couple thousand years ago, it was very applicable to us right now. In fact, let's read the whole chapter. We're just going to read the first chapter, 1 through 16. And then we'll go back and look over parts of it as we, as we go along, okay? Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. There's that first reference to God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, so we, there we see both the Father and the Son referred to as a Savior. <clears throat> For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Here he goes with the qualifications. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation, literally debauchery, or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Boy, how'd you like to have that said about you? <laughs> this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables or commandments of men who turn from the truth, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. <clears throat> so, we'll call this, I guess we can call these first, look at the first four verses, and we'll call this an inspiring introduction, as we'll go back and look at that. We find in these verses probably one of Paul's longer salutations, these first four verses of the text. In fact, only, uh, only those in his letters to the Romans and the churches to Galatia, I think it is, are longer than these. But otherwise, this is a fairly long introduction. Now, we've learned, as we just talked about, that Paul and Titus were close companions. So Paul's not writing these things to kind of you know, make an impression on Titus. No, he's trying to give him, I guess you might say, rules or, or a, a pattern uh, that he expects Titus to read this epistle to the churches in Crete, and it is then that he wants to impress upon them the importance of these lessons in godliness. So that's kind of the reason for writing the letter. He's not trying to 
you know, teach uh, Titus to do something, he's giving him a format by which he can teach and preach to these people in Crete. Let's look at those first four verses again real quick. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. We'll talk about that in a moment. And acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, true son our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls himself both a servant and an apostle. He is Christ's bond slave first, and then he is called, he is called to the office of an apostle. So we too must realize that Jesus, first of all, we must believe on him as our Lord and our Savior before we can truly be his representative in whatever capacity he calls us to, be it deacon, elder, whatever you might be. First of all, the relationship with Christ is key, obviously, before you can be a servant of Christ, as in this case, as an apostle. <clears throat> he was called to be a servant and an apostle, and how is he called? According to the faith of God's elect. Now, this is in line with Paul's teaching in his other epistles, like 2 Thessalonians 2.13, where he said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning, here's the two words, chosen you in salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So all of God's chosen ones have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as we're told in Ephesians 4.5. And Paul's calling uh, to faith in Christ was of God, of course, as ours is. And so was this apostleship, as we can learn from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's trying to get across here that this apostleship, his preaching of the gospel, is to bring to the forefront the knowledge, the truth that is according to godliness. Matthew Henry uh, made this comment in his commentary, and he says, his goal was to bring to this knowledge and faith and to the acknowledging and professing of the truth, which is after godliness, that's the great end of the gospel ministry. Even of the highest degree and order in it, their teaching should have this cheap aim to beget faith and confirm in it. So that's the, the goal of the gospel ministry is to reach people with Christ, they come to faith, and then to confirm them in it, to build them up in their faith, to help them to pursue godliness. And that should be our goal, obviously, on a daily basis, to pursue godliness. A faith in Christ that does not beget godliness cannot be a true faith, to be honest. First uh, Peter 1, 1, 3 tells us that. Also, James, of course, chapter 2 and verse 20 says that faith without works is dead. So if we claim to have faith, and yet our life has no fruit from it, there's no pursuit of godliness, well, obviously, we have a false faith. So that's what Paul's trying to warn against, and he's going to talk about that a little bit as we go along. So Paul goes on here in verse 2 to declare the end or hope of this faith and the acknowledgement of the truth is, of course, the hope of eternal life promised to us by God who cannot lie. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, and these are important terms for us to, I guess, lay hold of and be encouraged by, to an inheritance incorruptible, okay, cannot be in any way polluted or, or made invalid, undefiled, same term, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. 
that as I was studying this, that term really struck me how important that is. It's not something that we hope to get. It's not something that we can strive to get, but it's reserved. You know, if you go to a concert or even perhaps you're invited to a wedding and you're a special guest, you get a reserved seat somewhere and you probably feel pretty good. You know, when you get there and you have this reserved seat, you're in front of everybody else and they think you must be an important guest or something. So think about that, that we have a place in heaven that is reserved for us. It can't be taken away. It can't be replaced by somebody else. It's reserved there because we are in Christ and that place is secured for us. It should be a comfort to us when we go through our daily life and we're facing trials or difficulties or wondering you know, what the future is going to be. You have a reservation in heaven if you're in Christ. It can't be taken away from you. It's guaranteed. That should bring comfort to our souls, especially when we're faced with trials and difficulties and we're thinking, how am I ever going to get through this? Or what's my life going to be like at the end? You have a reservation for you. It's there. It's guaranteed. Rejoice in that and be comforted in that. It's reserved in heaven for you. And you might also want to see Romans chapter 2, verse 7 and 1 John 2.25 for the same thought. So this place in heaven is reserved for us, for his chosen ones. Our hope in him is secure. It's not questionable. It's not iffy. No, it's secure. We can trust the word of the living God, for his word is the very essence of truth. Not only that, but we see that this promise was not based on any merit in us or any other created being because it was made in the eternal counsels of the Godhead before the world was made. That's what the text says. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and a, with a holy, and a holy calling, and I'm sorry, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Wow, what a comfort. To know that God made up his mind before the world began, that he, was going to, he reserved a place in heaven for us. He brought us into this world, and he gave us the grace to believe in Christ, to be saved, and that we, that, so that the reservation would be filled, in a sense, by us, because he has chosen us before the world began. What a miracle of love and mercy, beloved. And I know we know that. We, obviously, if you've been attending this church for any length of time or been a Christian for any length of time, it should be a reality too. But it's good to be reminded every now and then because we do get discouraged. We do wonder. And this should give us peace to know that before the world began, God loved us with an everlasting love. He sent his son to die for us. And he gave us a reservation in heaven that we will secure, it is secured for us and we will fulfill one day when he takes us to himself. <clears throat> I'm also reminded of uh, these encouraging words found in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So let's lay hold of that hope. And let us live in the light of that hope in godliness and truth, as Paul will try and encourage us here and encourage Titus to teach the people there on Crete. Have comfort in that. Draw a sense of, of assurance and peace that you have that reservation, you have that hope, it's there for you. So Paul continues here, the inspirational salutation in verse 3, with his acknowledgement of his calling by God to preach this eternal message of salvation. That's what he was called to do. He, doesn't, he wasn't just saved to sit around. No, he was called to proclaim the gospel. Though ordained by God before the world began... So we're told in Romans 16, 15, or I'm sorry, Romans 16, 25, and Acts 15, 18, it is at the proper time 
that God manifested his word in the preaching of that message to draw sinners to himself via Paul's ministry. And, and we, I think we might have, Brian might have caught, touched on this a little bit. You think about it. Before the world began, God ordained for Rome, the, the Roman armies, the Roman nations to conquer the world, overcoming Greece. And at that particular time in history, in the first century, Saul, as we know him initially as Saul, was born into this world, born to a, a family where he is a Roman citizen. So God gave him that ability. Uh, he gave him training by Gamaliel, one of the chief rabbis in Israel. He, he knew the law of God. He knew the word of God. So he had all these qualities and things about him. And at the proper time, God met him on the road to Damascus, saved him, and made him be that instrument in his hand. So God ordained all those circumstances to bring Paul into that particular situation. In fact, you know, originally he was from Tarsus, but in the province of God, he brought him to Jerusalem, brought him under the train in Gamaliel, and he was there initially persecuting the church, but eventually brought into the church. And God ordained all that so that he might become this apostle, which wrote for us most of the New Testament, all under God's ordained circumstances. Now we can take that for granted, but we can also step back and say, wow, you know, God ordained all these things. He brought all that about so that we might have the word of God for us today and be able to study it and learn more about the grace of God in truth. <clears throat> so that's important, the proper timing of all things. God is ever sovereign in his work of redemption. In, in John 17, 2, Jesus said this of the Father, As you have given him, Christ, the power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. In due time, he died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. And in due time, God, via the preaching of the gospel, will gather together in one all things in Christ, it says in Ephesians 1, 10. So let's rejoice, beloved. Let's rejoice that we are in that, we are in that body of Christ. And let us boldly proclaim the gospel to others that they might, by drawn by the Spirit, join us in this body. Join us in rejoicing and praising God for his sovereign love and mercy. So finally, in this introduction, Paul concludes with this reference to Titus. He says, "My true, his true son in the common faith, the common faith of all believers in Christ. We are one in him. As scripture repeatedly tells us, especially in John's gospel and in the epistles, we are not to be ashamed of that faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, as we're told in Jude 3. One may note that these pastoral epistles are the only ones where Paul uses this greeting, or some would call it a blessing, with the words grace, mercy, and peace from God and the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one, he's the only one where he uses this is in these pastoral epistles. Matthew Henry, again, had some very insightful comments on these three words. First of all, grace. He said, grace, the free favor of God and acceptance with him. Mercy, the fruits of that favor in pardon of sins and freedom from all miseries by it, both here and hereafter. And peace, the positive effect and fruit of mercy. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as we're told in Romans 5.12, who is our peace. So let me go back over that again, what uh, Matthew Henry is saying. He's saying those three words that Paul uses, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, the free favor of God and acceptance with him. Mercy, the fruits of that favor, the fruit of that grace, in pardon of sins and freedom from all the miseries by it, both here and hereafter, and peace, the positive effect and fruit of mercy. What a blessing that we have that, we, 
have that grace, mercy, and peace manifested to us because of God's love for us. It's certainly profitable for our souls, beloved, to dwell upon the grace, mercy, and peace manifested by God towards us in Christ. So in this introduction, Paul has what? He's set in order. Here's the title of my message. He's set in order the, the, the basis of our salvation in Christ and our hope in him. So let's move on now from his instruction to Titus to set in order the affairs of the church in Crete. Okay? okay? So secondly, setting things in order, qualified elders, verses 5 through 9. Let's read those again real quick. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Here they are. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convict those who contradict. So, first, a little historical background. It is believed by some biblical historians that Paul, along with Titus, visited Crete shortly after his release from his first Roman imprisonment. So that's kind of the timing of it. It's presumed that due to his desire to visit works that he had already established, and some believe promises made to those works, which we see in Philemon 1.22, he didn't stay very long in Crete, but instead left Titus to set in order the things that are lacking. Okay? Paul realized he didn't have time to do all that he wanted to do. He had to move on. But he said he left Titus there to kind of set things in order, to make sure the churches were well-established, built up, and, of course, had godly leaders. <clears throat> Excuse me. In any case, as we'll see in the latter part of this chapter, Crete's reputation of its inhabitants being notorious liars made Paul even more aware of the importance of appointing godly men of impeccable character to lead the various churches that had sprung up in the cities of Crete where Paul and Titus had preached the gospel. So though some guidelines uh, for church offices and order in the worship services are given in these pastoral epistles, they are primarily, primarily an exhortation to godliness and not a how-to church manual. Okay? They don't give us you know, how to order your services and what to do, how many uh, um, policy and procedure manuals you should have, <laughs> uh, or whatever. But it's a, it's a general, you know, instruction on how things should go uh, as far as godliness, how a church should be conducted in godliness. Paul was not in favor of chaos or open, you know, worship services. In 1 Corinthians 14.40, he said, let all things be done decently and in order. Okay, so he expected a structure here. However, as we read this text, he was more concerned with the pursuit of godliness that would demonstrate to the world the impact of Christ on our lives. That's the key. If we, as God's people, gathered as a body of believers, live a godly life that reflects Christ's work in us, that was going to be more of a testimony to the world than our organization or our structure from a, a secular point of view. And we see this emphasis in the qualifications for elders, such qualities as blameless, holy, lover of what is good, self-controlled, etc., were important for an elder to manifest, particularly, particularly in this Cretan society where such qualities were often lacking in its leaders, based on what Paul is saying here. The pastoral role of elders demands and expects 
a mature, sound Christian character and a personal life that is an example to others. So that's what he's, he's saying here. The qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, for instance, are obviously similar uh, to these that Paul gives us in Titus with, with some variations. Uh, a quick comparison between the two lists shows that the one in 1 Timothy is a little longer. But the one in Titus puts more emphasis here on character qualities that reflect a pure and holy life, perhaps, again, why? Because of the reputation of the Cretans, okay? He's trying to disciple these Cretans who are used to lying and being, you know, uh, ungodly in their conduct. So he's got to not only point them to Christ and bring them faith in Christ, but he has to teach them that lying is not acceptable in the church. So he's, he's trying to teach godly men to lead the church to have that impact on these Cretans who are used to having a sort of lifestyle that's obviously not exactly what we'd want it to be. So as we see in verse 5, Paul had apparently given Timothy specific directions to appoint elders, whereas in Timothy, he had just given the qualifications. Okay? He didn't tell Timothy, appoint elders. He just gave him qualifications for elders. But here he specifically tells Titus, appoint elders. In listing the qualifications, we see that Paul has broken them up into three categories, which we'll briefly review here in our study. Uh, we know he begins with the phrase, if any be blameless. Uh, of course, no man who has ever walked the face of this earth except for our Lord Jesus Christ can ever be said to be truly blameless. We know that. We're all sinners. We are surely to blame for our sin. The Greek word here is anenkletos, which means unaccused or in his character or irreproachable. Calvin said regarding the use of this Greek word, he does not mean that one who is exempt from every vice, for no such person could at any time be found, but one who is marked by no disgrace that would lessen his authority. He means, therefore, that he shall be a man of unblemished reputation. Okay? This would be particularly true, of course, in regard to those negative characteristics we see in verse 7. So he's not saying that the guy has to be perfect, but he's saying he needs to have the kind of qualities that would give him a reputation that is unblemished. There's, no one can accuse him of being you know, a, an ungodly man or a liar or whatever. He wants a man who has a good, great reputation, who has lived a life of godliness. First, Paul uses the category of family relationships to define the qualifications for an elder. As in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the literal meaning of the second phrase is that the elder should be a one-woman man. In other words, a faithful husband of one life, wife. More particular description is given here of his children than in 1 Timothy. Here he says literally that there will be children of faith. This speaks strongly of the importance of evangelism beginning in the home. If a minister cannot reach his own children with the gospel, how does he expect to reach others? Now obviously we can't guarantee uh, that our children will be saved. Salvation is of the Lord. But what Paul is saying here, to quote William Hendrickson, is that the one who would be an elder should have children who share the Christian faith of their fathers and who adorn that faith with a godly conduct. So children within our home, we would hope that we've reached them with the gospel, and if God has saved them, they would conduct themselves in a manner that would reflect the grace of God and would be a support to us if we're in a position of being an elder. But obviously it doesn't guarantee that just because we're an elder, all our children are automatically going to be saved. So there's a, there's a balance there. We keep it in the right perspective. <clears throat> Suddenly, or I'm sorry, secondly, Paul reiterates this quality of being blameless especially as a steward of God. And then he lists five negative characteristics that an elder must avoid there in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He must be not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but 
hospitable lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, self-controlled. So the important things here is obviously the man can't be perfect. None of us are perfect in that sense. But they should have these qualities that is reflected in their life and something that they're growing in as they grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Let a man so accord of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. So elders need to be faithful. They need to be consistent. Primarily, we see these negative characteristics in these negative characteristics, a lack of self-control. That's what they're really reflecting, right? A man who cannot control his anger, his wine, or his greed should not be a shepherd of Christ's sheep, obviously. So there's a self-control factor that is important here. Thirdly, Paul lists positive characteristics that the elder must have. The main theme of these is that he desire, uh, the elder desires, in word and deed, to be a blessing to others. Hospitality, literally, in the Greek, fond of guests, was very important in those days, as you can imagine, especially where persecution drove Christians uh, from their communities and they sought refuge with God's people in other cities. The second characteristic, a lover of good men, is also important. In Psalm 16.3, we find these words, you might remember, I taught on that back a month or two ago, the psalmist says, as to the saints in the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We should delight to be with godly men and women that are not only good company, but truly edify us in our faith. It's a true sign that we are in Christ when we love the brethren, no matter what their flaws are. 1 John 3:14. we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. And John 17, where we're, we find Christ's great high priestly prayer, one of the things that stands out in that chapter is Jesus' constant reference to us being one in him. He also states that our oneness is a testimony to the world. John 17, 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. We are one in him. May we manifest, we as believers here, may we manifest that oneness in Christ to the world, beloved, that we might bring glory to him and advance his kingdom as well. And lastly, in verse 9 of this section, we see the chief purpose of an elder is stated to what? Hold fast or adhere to the word of God that, quote, by sound doctrine to exhort and convince the gainsayers. We are to hold fast to that word as elders that we, by proclaiming sound doctrine, we can exhort and convince those who are arguing against us or saying, oh, that doesn't matter. No, we have that sound faith. 2 Timothy 1.13 says, Hold fast the form of sound words, which you have heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's hold fast to the word of truth, beloved. Let's not have a loose hand of sound doctrines, kind of, you know, not believing, but believing and sometimes and not believing and kind of going back and forth. Let's hang on to it. Let's believe and live out the principles of God's word daily. The elders charge here in particular is to both exhort, the Greek words mean to call near or to beseech, and convince or to admonish or rebuke or reprove those who contradict. An elder's got to be knowledgeable of the word to refute error. But we note the language here is not just that of blasting people with sound doctrine, but rather a wise yet firm calling or reproof to them to yield to God's truth. And we can see that in 2 Timothy 2.25 as well. 
we'll see the importance of this qualification of elders in the next section of this chapter. In fact, let's move on to that <coughs> as we go through here to the end. The elder's role, which is setting things in order by rebuking false teachers. And honestly, if you study the New Testament, a lot of the epistles in the latter part of the New Testament is not only proclaiming the truth and giving sound doctrine, but it's also rebuking or giving uh, counsel to stand against these false teachers that are trying to destroy the church, that are trying to spread false doctrine in there. So that's what Paul's going to do as well. And we'll see that further on as we go into the next two chapters. But he does it here in <clears throat> verses 10 through 16. Let's read those real quick. For there are many insubordinate. Remember, he's talking to people who are in the churches now. He's telling Titus, hey, you've you got to get control of these churches, get good elders in there, because within the church are these people who are tearing it apart, so to speak. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, who turn from the truth. Let's stop there for a minute. <clears throat> As we've already mentioned, it seems that the Cretes had a bad reputation. The first century inhabitants of this island were notorious for their untruthfulness and their immorality, and even the Jews, those of the circumcision, instead of having a good influence on the Cretans, had basically fallen into the same deceitfulness that they were a part of. Paul's description here of these false teachers is very similar to the one he used in 1 Timothy chapter 1, regarding the false teachers in Ephesus. Sadly, as we see here in verse 10, it wasn't just one or two, but what does he say? Many unruly or insubordinate and vain talkers. It was becoming a widespread problem, and Paul wants Titus to stop it and its tract. Even sadder, as I mentioned above, is that the Jews, God's chosen people, were bringing shame to his name by their conduct. I'm afraid... Beloved, the church in America, though perhaps not guilty of total untruthfulness and unruly behavior, is guilty of not having the positive influence we should have on the country. May we be used of God as God's people to reverse that trend, beloved, before it gets to be too late. <clears throat> now, it would appear from verse 11 that these teachers were also seeking to profit by their false teaching, you know, probably asking for donations or support. Paul mentions no words here in stating that their mouths must be stopped. It doesn't indicate how, but since Paul nor Titus would have any authority outside of the churches on pagan society to discipline anyone, he must be speaking about those who were church members or at least attended these churches uh, and were false believers. In that case, he could impose church discipline using Matthew 18, even to the point of excommunication. Uh, these verses remind me of Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, where it speaks of those who have no fear of God, and then it says, now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law that so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be under judgment before God. In other words, we should use the law of God to rebuke those in the church who live contrary to the law that they might be accountable to God. It's not our desire to get rid of them, but we want them to repent and turn to God and be accountable to him. So Paul's trying here, uh, implying here that Titus and those who are appointed elders must use their authority to stop these false teachers who are subverting whole households, as he says. <clears throat> and as we look at verse 12 and Paul's affirmation of it in verse 13, 
We may shudder, you know, shudder at the breadth of the charge. But again, is America much better? You know, here's a, an indictment of Crete. What could be said about America? Here we have the testimony of one of their own, it says, that Cretans as a nation are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Man, what an indictment. And by the way, a historical footnote, this condemnation is said to have been uttered by one Epidamendes, a native of Gnosis on Crete's northern shore. He lived, here's this guy, it's interesting, he lived about five or 600 years before Christ and was regarded by some as one of the seven wisest men in the ancient world. So this is no off-the-cuff you know, news reporter here or guy giving his opinion. This is a guy who is a student of history and also is a, a, a man of great wisdom uh, that he had made this indictment of the Cretans. And in any case, sadly, the Cretans maintained their bad reputation through the centuries to the point where the noun Cretanism means liar. If you call someone a Cretan or the, the principle of Cretanism, you're calling someone a liar. Paul not only confirms this, but sadly indicates that even believers among the Cretans had maintained this bad characteristic so that he said they should be rebuked sharply, that they might be sound in their faith and instead pursue truthfulness and godliness. And, you know, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 says, open rebuke is better than secret love. There are times when we have to be compassionate and understanding, but there are times when we need to rebuke someone who is sinning and especially bringing reproach upon the name of Christ. Also, Paul used these words in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. He said, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. So again, our desire is that the name of Christ should not be blasphemed by our conduct in the church or anyone in the church, that we as the bride of Christ would rather bring glory to his name, as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-12. through 12. So, in verse 14 here, Paul again warns the church against the Judaizers and their fables that pervert the truth. This verse and the phrase, commandments of men, remind me of our Lord's solemn words in Matthew chapter 15. Let's turn there. In fact, Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Paul's trying to show Titus how serious it is that they are perverting the truth and teaching the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's be sure, beloved, that we do not replace the precepts and the doctrines of the words of God with the commandments of men, with our own opinions. No matter how noble they might sound, no matter how wise they might sound, let's be careful we don't re replace the Word of God and the doctrines found in the Word of God with our own personal opinions and our own ideas. So let's finish up this chapter as we look at the last two verses there, 15 and 16. Let me read them again. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being an abominable, disobedient, and disqualified from every good work. This is really a lesson in Christian liberty as well as a rebuke to the Jews. What he's saying here is that to believers, nothing is unclean regarding, for instance, meat and drink in that particular society if it is received with thanksgiving, as we're told in 1 Timothy 4.5. 
John Calvin said this about verse 15. He says, in the first clause of the verse, he upholds Christian liberty by asserting that the believers, nothing is unclean. But at the same time, he indirectly censors the false apostles who set no value on inward purity, which is alone esteemed by God. The Jews who were troubling some of the church members in Crete were once again emphasizing the commandments of men and probably encouraging outward purification at the expense of inward purity and conformity to the word of God. They were setting up false standards in order to lord it over the Christians and try to lure them back into Judaism. You know, oh, you've got to follow this. You've got, you got to not eat these things. You've got to do these ceremonies. He's using that type of, they're using that type of trick to get the Christians to forsake Christianity and come back to Judaism. So, in this, let's sum it up real quick. In this chapter, <clears throat> um, we have Paul's lengthy greeting, which includes a defense of his calling and a reminder of the sure promise the hope that we have eternal life in God in a, from a God who cannot lie. Then we had this list of qualifications for elders that he asked Titus to appoint to set in order the things that remain. There's the theme, the set in order. And as we noted, there was an emphasis here on godly character and blamelessness. This was especially important, as we said, in the light of the reputation of the Cretans to be liars and immoral or ungodly. So he therefore urges that those within the church who had been taught who have been caught up, I should say, in the false teaching and the false standards of the Jews, should be sharply rebuked, not tolerated, not making excuses for, but pointed back to the truth. Again, he wanted them to be set in order or put in their proper place to enable them to be a testimony to those around them. You know, America may be very well uh, failing or falling to the level of deserving the title of a Cretan nation, yet we, as God's people, have to be on guard and be sure that we both know and heed the truth of God's word and reject the commandments of men. So let's be sure that we set in order our lives, set in order our lives according to the word of God, that we can be a light to the world around us and people can see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Okay, let's close in prayer.